Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. October 31st, 1517, a brief 506 years ago, the day after this episode drops, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. This was not a protest. It was basically a community bulletin board. He was just posting the discrepancies that he had found between what the church was saying and what the Bible said. Luther didn't want to break away from the church. He just wanted to fix the church, you know, correct the problems. Needless to say, they were not interested in his findings. They had a good thing going. During this entire process, one of the problems that Luther saw with the church is that they wouldn't produce a Bible that the common man could read. He wanted to get the Bible in the common tongue and get it to the people. Now, he was warned that if this were to happen, people would start to pick and choose what and how they'd believe and create a number of different religions. Luther weighed this argument and concluded that it was still better to take that chance and get the Bible to anyone and everyone who wanted it. Well, that warning proved to be prophetic, as we now have approximately infinity plus one denominations, subdenominations, cults, etc., etc., all claiming they've got the interpretation correct. Yet Luther was correct also that the Bible was meant for everyone, not for a controlling few. That said, we find ourselves in a position today with various denominations, various cults, and with the addition of godless Darwinian evolution, that the worldviews of the religious and irreligious are widely varied. Both inside and outside of Christianity, everyone is trying to figure out how this world works. The success rate appears to be worse than the success rate or batting average of most Major League Baseball players today. At least they get a hit about 25% of the time. On today's episode, first we're going to just dive right in. Don't think about it, just cannonball! And then we're going to sit back with some delicious purple watermelon. And a goal update for the ages. Eh, not really, but it sounded good, right? So don your swim cap, goggles, and nose plug, and dig through that tangled up utensil drawer to find the melon baller. Watch out for the sharp knives hiding at the bottom. Because the way I see it, here we go. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus at night, stated that they, the Pharisees, or at least a portion of them, recognized that Jesus was doing miracles, so clearly he must have come from God. Jesus, seemingly dismissive of Nicodemus's statement, got to the heart of the issue, quote, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God.'" What ensues is a discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. Jesus revealed cryptically, but prophetically, that he must be lifted up, as Moses, commanded by God, lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness to save the lives of the people that were bitten by the venomous serpents, sent by God as a punishment, if only they would look to the bronze serpent and a show of faith in God that God would save their lives by doing as he told them. That brings us to the most famous and well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
This verse, down through verse 21, is generally credited to Jesus. However, I tend to be in the camp that believes Jesus didn't actually say those six verses, rather that this passage was actually an an interjection by John, and the words of Jesus to Nicodemus ended in verse 15. The account as written makes more sense when read this way, at least in my opinion. Regardless, this verse is generally thought of as the central verse in the entire Bible speaking about salvation for mankind. In the world of Protestantism, there are two main philosophies as to how salvation happens, both of which claim this verse with slight nuances on the word whoever. The most prominent or most popular today is generally termed the Armenian view, which is a view that man works in cooperation with God in order to attain salvation, otherwise known as synergism. God calls, man has free will to accept or reject that call, and God either cannot exert his will over man's, or as some people say, God is too much of a gentleman to step on the free will of man. When viewing the doctrine of election, which is unbelievably controversial for some reason, but is definitely in the Bible, the Armenian view believes that God looked down through time before he created anything, saw who would choose him, then chose or elected them from before time. The active agent, the sovereign agent in this transaction, is man. This was the view I held for about 40 years. The other view is generally termed Calvinism, and although at one time this was the widely accepted view in Protestantism, it's now kind of the black sheep of the family. In this view, salvation is for God to decide alone, a view that is termed monergism. This says that man is not able to choose God as they are spiritually dead, not sick, they're dead, as the scriptures say, and therefore God must be the singular agent of resurrection or rebirth. With regard to the doctrine of election, God is sovereign in electing some to salvation. That said, the paradox is that man still has free will. But remember, free will is not doing something outside of the decreed will and foreordination of God. It's acting according to the inclination of your heart rather than being forced to act contrary. So although God does the acting, the electing, man makes their own choice, which aligns to the inclination of their heart, and they're happy with and responsible for their choice. This is the view I've held for about the last eight years. Now, there have been countless battles. We're not talking discussions and debates. We're talking battles between denominations, churches, pastors, friends, families, spouses, etc. over these two views. And it can be contentious to the point that denominations and churches split, that families fracture, friends part ways. Sadly, I know this personally, from a few different angles. Most often, the battles are about the concept of free will, or the fairness of the unsaved going to hell, or some other peripheral aspect while ignoring the singular central issue, the sovereignty of God. One view holds man is totally depraved, dead in sin, and thus God is the sovereign agent, as dead men don't do nothing. The other view is that man is mostly depraved, with a spark of potential goodness still flickering inside him, and since God's calling is to everyone equally, it's up to man to kindle that spark, turn from their sin of their own accord, and choose God. God is sovereign up to the point that his sovereignty would trump man's, at which point man's sovereignty takes precedence. Also lost in the discussion is the reality that both views actually agree that when brought to the human level, the primary aspects of the faith are identical. Salvation, per the Bible, is repentance of past sins and a willing desire to turn from the old life of sin to a new life of striving after Christ, 
and faith or belief in Jesus. That's all aspects of Jesus, from his virgin conception and birth to his death, resurrection, and ascension, and everything between and on either side all the way out to eternity of those points pertaining to who Jesus is. Put simply, salvation is repentance and faith. Additionally, both views agree that after salvation, we should gather corporately as a body of believers at church, that we should partake of the sacraments of communion, that baptism is commanded as a public profession of faith, some religions believe it's more, but it's at least that, and that the rest of our lives are lived in a perpetual state of personal sanctification and a readiness as well as a command to tell others about the hope that we have within us. There are some variations, like I said, as to how various denominations view some of these core doctrines, but the basic concept is, or at least it should be, the same across believers. So now, with that minefield of a background established, which I will come back to, let me go from standing in the midst of the fire to a position of sleeping on a bed of dried leaves in a house made of gasoline-soaked hay bales in the middle of a raging forest fire planted in the crater of the main vent of an active volcano. I recently did a segment where I spoke about the TV series The Chosen and about the alleged super revival that took place in Asbury and the movie Jesus Revolution and how as Christians we must be very, very careful about what we rapidly, exuberantly, but to some degree mindlessly label as Christian. Were all the professed salvation at Asbury actually saved? No. Realistically, the legitimate number of conversions was probably a very small percentage of those that joined in the emotionalism. FOMO, or the fear of missing out, is a real thing, and it's psychologically manipulative. I would love for all the professed to be saved now or in the future, but the statistics simply are not with us on that. The movie Jesus Revolution was hailed as an evangelical masterpiece, but most people that watched it have no idea who Lonnie Frisbee actually was, which, uh, yeah, I, I think that does matter. And The Chosen, <laughs> seemingly a good tool to reach people, but there are so many issues with it to the point that what's in each episode, as well as interviews, posts, and comments by Dallas Jenkins, Jim Caviezel, and others outside of the episodes, can and will severely compromise someone in having a biblical faith rather than a Hollywood faith. If you're a Christian watching The Chosen and you haven't found issues with it, Thank your past teaching, as you are actually subconsciously dismissing error and filling in the blanks. But curse your discernment, as you are subconsciously dismissing error and filling in the blanks. And now, I'm seeing yet another pattern in recent Christian world news of seemingly super exciting news that everyone is super pumped about, and everyone is posting about on Facebook, and I don't think anyone has looked into this. And before we dive in, let me lay out this caveat. I know that this labels me as a pessimist, like I just want this stuff to fail or I want to be controversial. That's simply not true. I actually term myself as an optimist but a realist, which in some cases creates my own paradox. I want these stories to be true, but I want them to be truly true, not emotionally true. And I'm afraid that from what I can find, and I've done some moderately deep digging as best I can on what I've got coming up here, I'm just not finding the supporting evidence I would hope that these professional Christian reporters would strive to uncover. As a Christian reporter reporting on an alleged Christian event, you would think there would be some basic facts that they'd want to nail down before proceeding, but they're not doing that. And because of that, we get ham-fisted articles of Christian emotionalism, not necessarily something Christians should rejoice over, although that's the prevailing reaction. Quite possibly something we should lament and pray over, in fact, which is not what we're doing. 
A few more brief examples to illustrate what I'm talking about and set myself up here. Let me present to you Kanye West, or Ye, I think he's still choosing to be called. He was the next big Christian thing, and we jumped all over him. What a win for the kingdom! He even made a Christian album, which overall wasn't terrible in sound and lyrics, to be honest. And he was reading scripture and going to church and whatnot. Where is he now? He seems to be not as interested. If you're in one camp, you may say he is now backslidden. If you're in another camp, you say that it appears per his fruit that he was never saved to begin with. How about Oliver Anthony, you know, the Richmond North of Richmond singer? Christians and conservatives alike rushed him into their respective and in some cases overlapping camps. I mean, he's reading scriptures at his concerts, concerts he had never given until that song took off, and he promised that if God did something for him, then he'd do something for God. Now that's problematic, as what else must God do than what he's already done, exactly? But when we dig a little deeper, he's not really a Christian. There was no conversion. There was no experience. And looking at his language, his actions, and his views, I don't think we should try to claim him as or affirm him as a Christian, at least not yet. And he's not a conservative. Maybe a social libertarian? Maybe? And I could roll out Trump as well, but I strive to not be controversial in this podcast, so I won't venture into that one (laughs) for now. So what is the latest big thing that I've been seeing lately? Well, starting with what I found on the ChristianPost.com headline, Kat Von D gets baptized one year after renouncing witchcraft, the occult. Kat Von D, or Catherine Von Drachenberg, is the heavily tattooed tattoo artist, TV star, recording artist, etc., made famous mostly by the TLC reality show LA Inc. She's most typically seen as goth, wearing a lot of black, a penchant for the macabre, etc. She's someone that nobody would have mistaken for a Christian. Well, the now 41-year-old took stock of her life, must have been a few years ago, and last year, as the headline stated, she, quote, renounced the occult and witchcraft. Praise the Lord for that. Now, she gave birth to a son in late 2018. He, now nearly five years old, he doesn't need to grow up in the home with that stuff going on. So that's a wonderful thing. It's great. And just the other day, she was baptized. So let me quote the Christian Post directly. Quote, Drakenberg, whose gothic style has gained her much popularity, renounced the occult and witchcraft last year. Now she has taken the next step in her walk with Jesus by following the biblical ordinance of baptism. Okay, hold on a minute. Did you catch it? What's missing in there? Baptism is a profession of something, and that something is not renouncing the occult and witchcraft. Now, she posted a video of her baptism in which the pastor said, quote, Catherine von Dreckenberg, upon your profession of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in obedience to his divine command, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute again. Her profession of the Lord Jesus Christ, what? It's, we're missing something here. Now, there's no specific prayer to pray, or speech to make, or preface that the pastor must give prior to baptizing someone. But for most of us that grew up in a Christian church and have been baptized ourselves or witnessed baptisms, the pastor usually makes a few things as clear as possible. Now, recently, there were a handful of people that were baptized at my church. I want to quote some of what was said in comparison to what we just heard. Now, the pastor, prior to baptizing anyone, stood before the congregation and said that there were seven individuals that were going to be baptized. Then he said, quote, And in doing so, 
They're going to publicly confess their obedience to Christ and that their hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is really important for you to hear this because I want no confusion here this morning. The men and women who enter into the waters of baptism have been saved by the merit and blood of Christ. These waters declare that. They do not save them. They do not cleanse them, but they declare this morning something that is true of each of these individuals, that they have embraced Christ as their only hope, and because of that, they have experienced the cleansing from their sins that only Jesus can provide. He then explains briefly the symbolism of baptism and how it illustrates the gospel. Then after a few more words to the congregation, a prayer time for us as individuals to quietly go to God, then he moved to the baptism tank. As each person was led into the water, a brief personalized introduction of that person was given. Then he moves to the questions that most of us have come to expect. Quote, Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, died a sufficient death for your sins, and rose from the dead? Next question, quote, Do you confess before God and his church that you have repented of your sins and you trust wholly in Jesus alone for salvation? Then finally, quote, Do you commit to obey Christ, to serve his church, and to fulfill his calling upon your life? Now, with the questions answered in the affirmative, a prayer for the person specifically is done, and then the immersion of baptism. Why was this type of questioning absent from Kat's baptism? Now, the article goes on to say that she hugged her pastor, she meekly listened to him, she sang in the choir, and then it backs up in time to a year ago when Kat renounced the occult. Quoting Kat's Instagram post from July 2022, quote, I don't know if any of you have been going through changes in your lives right now, but in the last few years, I've come to some pretty meaningful realizations, many of them revolving around the fact that I got a lot of things wrong in my past. Today, I went through my entire library and threw out books that just don't align with who I am and who I want to be. I've always found beauty in the macabre, but at this point, I just had to ask myself, what is my relationship with this content? And the truth is, I just don't want to invite any of these things into our family's lives, even if it comes disguised in beautiful covers collecting dust on my shelves. Again, I say, good, but there are a lot of people in church living clean lives, even baptized, that aren't saved. I'm looking for a profession of faith and repentance, and it's, it's just not anywhere. Now, the article goes on to say that her parents were actually Seventh-day Adventist missionaries, and that she recalls they, quote, kept the Sabbath, went to church on Saturdays, followed the Ten Commandments, and didn't eat any pork or fish without scales. She went on to tell her Instagram followers that she only wanted love and light around her family, and that she was engaged in a spiritual battle. The Christian Post article ended with saying Kat was wanting to make meaningful changes, one of which was moving her family from California to Indiana, resulting in her closing down her popular tattoo shop. End of story. And, and a survey question after that, actually, that says, was this article helpful? You know, I'd click yes or no. It took all I had in me to, you know, not click a choice, specifically one of the two options. I've done some searching, and, of course, pretty much everything written in the last few days about Kat has been about her baptism. For the last year and a half, any article I could find spoke of her getting out of the occult and witchcraft. I was unable to find where she trusted Jesus as her personal savior through his blood and sacrifice. Now, let me be clear. I'm not her judge. There's no way for me to know her heart. I absolutely believe that there's a spiritual battle taking place. But let me ask you this. Would Satan rather you clearly identify your current lifestyle as not God-honoring and turn to Christ for salvation or would Satan rather you renounce the obvious and then live a life of affirmation as a Christian without ever actually being saved? 
I maintain that Satan would much rather we live in a world that's good, where we do good things, where we're told that we're on the right track, but never actually saved, still, under the curse of sin and the second death, until we say, but Lord, did I not? Moving on, also found on the ChristianPost.com headline, NFL legend Jim Kelly gets baptized. Best decision I've made in my life. So, coming out about 10 days prior to the cat baptism story, Jim Kelly hopped into the pool with his pastor and took the plunge. Now, Kelly is 63 years old. He's an NFL Hall of Fame quarterback from the Buffalo Bills, a husband, a father, a man that is very closely associated with turmoil and tragedy. Jim and his wife gave birth to a son, Hunter, in 1997. Hunter was diagnosed with crab disease, which is a rare genetic condition, and passed away at the age of eight in 2005. In 2013, Kelly was diagnosed with cancer that resulted in him having a portion of his upper jaw removed. He was cancer-free until it was found again in 2018. At that time, his wife posted on her Instagram account, quote, We are shocked, heartbroken, sad, angry, confused, and just darn tired. Yet despite how we feel, we know that God is a promise maker and keeper. The more life and heartbreak I experience, the more I realize that this is not the end of the story. Now look. I'm not going to critique her choice of words in the midst of yet another major trial in their lives, but I'll say that I definitely hear the phraseology of your typical health, wealth, prosperity gospel, enough to make me a little bit concerned as to where we're heading here. Now, thankfully, and I don't know the story, but thankfully the doctors and Jim fought back the cancer once more. In September 2021, he was interviewed by SportsSpectrum.com and said, quote, It didn't take me very long to realize that God had a plan for me, and that was to be able to share what I've been through to others that may be looking to give up, to not persevere through the tough times. And that very well may be true. That may be part of God's purpose for his life. He said that he hosts a once-a-month men's fellowship group, quote, where roughly 20 men gather together to share about the challenges and joys in life and to encourage one another. The meetings are held on Mondays during the NFL season, and afterward, the men enjoy that week's Monday night football matchup together. Well, I mean, that's it's very nice. He uses this fellowship group in part to, quote, share about the struggles in his life and how God has granted him the grace to persevere through it all with a smile on his face. Kelly's positive outlook also comes from his regular quiet time in the morning, studying and learning God's word and focusing on the good things in life. Again, I, I'm not getting a warm, fuzzy feeling, and it's getting colder and less fuzzy as we go on. Now, the interview wrapped up with Jim saying, quote, I've been tested over and over and over again, and I'm still being tested. But you just have to keep the faith. Keep that positive attitude. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'll agree, but nowhere did he say anything about his salvation. CBN.com did an interview with him in December of 2022 regarding a book that he had written and recently released. The interview focused heavily on the book, which makes sense, but nowhere in the interview did the interviewer for the Christian Broadcasting Network or Jim Kelly himself offer his salvation story or offer a gospel message or speak the name of Jesus or Christ or etc. 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 I searched. In fact, he mentioned faith once with regard to parenting and how he's teaching his daughter to practice her faith even outside of the church and make sure you spend quiet time. But that's it. When going to Jim's personal and I guess business website, even though there's a small section of Q&A about Jim with some of the questions being personal in nature, nowhere on his page can anything about his faith be found. So back to the Christian Post article about his baptism. With both he and his pastor in the water, the pastor says, quote, how about this one, huh? 
and then there's applause from the people that are standing around. It's been a privilege to see you do exactly what you're going to do right here. We talked about 15 years of Bible study and prayer and growth, and to see this day happen is such a sweet, sweet day, brother. I love you. I think we can all say we're proud of you, how far you've come and where you're going. It's even better. Then he pauses, and he asks the vital question, do you love Jesus? To which Kelly shouts out, yes, I do. Then he baptizes him. Again, what, what's missing here? What, what's missing everywhere here? His wife posted about his baptism saying, quote, I have witnessed God at work in this man's life for over 30 years, and I can tell you that God isn't just real. He is faithful, trustworthy, kind, loving, compassionate, powerful, gracious, good, merciful, forgiving, and so, so much more. God is immeasurably more than we can imagine. He is everything. And again, I don't disagree with that, but that is definitely the Health, Wealth, Prosperity prepackaged message. In a different post, she said, quote, For those wondering, here's what I know and understand about baptism. It's biblical. Jesus is our example. He was dedicated to the Lord as a baby and baptized as an adult before starting his earthly ministry. It's an act of obedience. It's an outward expression of an inward change of heart, a change of heart that comes through faith in Christ that only God can ultimately provide. It's a move of faith that unites us to Christ and his people. <sighs> Although none of that is... I guess necessarily wrong, we're missing some very important pieces of the puzzle. And I did some more searching for Jim's salvation experience. I did more, in fact, than I did with Kat. And I, I can't find anywhere where he talks about it. Unlike Kat, Jim seems to be farther down the road. But similar to Kat, there seems to be pieces missing. And I don't know if that's due to a false gospel being preached and a false conversion, or if it's just a very young, naive faith or something else, maybe. One more. Coming out the same day, early in October, is Cat's baptism story, found on IJR.com, headline, Bear Grills celebrates baptism in Jordan River. Offers most important survival tip, stay close to Jesus. Apparently a lifelong dream, Grills, the star of the reality survivalist TV show Man vs. Wild, was baptized in the Jordan River a few days ago. Bear stated that his hero is John the Baptist, and to be baptized where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist was something that he always wanted to do. He wrote, quote, The story is so amazing, and it seems wherever Jesus went, that new birth, new life, a new vision followed. Okay, kind of a curious way to state that, but okay. He went on in his post on X that, quote, Luke, in the Bible, was probably a Syrian doctor before he met Jesus. He writes a reliable, poignant account of his life. It's short. I like it. And look, look, I, I know you have a character limit on X, but, uh, but that may be the most elementary age Sunday school kid statement ever, right? I mean, it's short. I like it. <laughs> that just made me chuckle, so I had to share it with you. Grills, from what I can find, is an Irish Anglican. Anglican has some beliefs that I would not agree with specifically, but I would feel comfortable-ish saying that people can be saved as Anglicans with very little concern. That said, Grills is very anti-religion. Some of his views I wholeheartedly agree with, some I don't. He feels that the current religious culture is too sanitized. It's been made into something where people can't be real, can't be honest, can't ask questions or express doubt or even fail. And I'd say in large part, he's not wrong. He said in a Christian Post article from January 2023, quote, I think Jesus would really struggle with 99% of churches nowadays. Our job in life is to stay close to Christ and drop the religious, drop the fluff, drop the church if you need to, because that means so many different things to different people anyway. 
Keep the bit of church which is about community and friends and honesty and faith and love. All the masks, performances, music, and worship bands, and all of that sort of stuff, I don't think Christ would recognize a lot of that. Oh, yeah, I, I think Christ would recognize it just fine, but, uh, but for the most part, not in a good way. Bear went on, quote, Look at the early church. It was a room full of people eating and drinking and doubting and struggling and arguing. But the church today has gotten away from that. Probably most of the people in the congregation have substance abuse, and probably most of their congregations struggle with porn and all that sort of stuff. What a relief it is when a pastor can stand up and go, Welcome to the hospital, folks. Here we go. I'm just standing alongside you on the road, failing our way through, but reaching out of desperation for life and love and redemption. Let's look outwards and love other people, and we're in it together. Okay, I mean, the pastor is supposed to be above reproach, right? That doesn't mean perfect or sinless, as that's impossible, but the pastor should be able to look into the eyes of his congregation, as women can't be pastors if the Bible is true, and I maintain that it is, and at least tell them that he's not struggling with substance abuse, that he's not an alcoholic or an adulterer, that he's not struggling with pornography, which, sadly, about 50% of pastors these days can't say that. So I don't agree with Bear's idea that we all just get in there and kind of muddle around together. That said, is Bear Grylls saved? Right? That's the question we're asking here. Well, in doing some more searching, I found in various interviews the information that follows. Bear said that as a child, he had a very natural faith. He knew God existed and just never questioned that. When he went away to boarding school, the emotionlessness of religion drove him away from faith. It was all rules, which was a turnoff. At the age of 16, his godfather, who he was apparently very close to, died suddenly, and Bear, on his own, sobbing, quote, felt a calming presence which started an ember of faith. He says that he starts nearly every morning on his knees praying for strength, protection for him and his family, for forgiveness, etc., etc. He said, quote, to me, my faith is all about being held, comforted, forgiven, strengthened, and loved, yet somehow that message gets lost on most of us, and we tend only to remember the religious nutters or the god of endless school assemblies, and this is no one's fault, it's just life. Our job is to stay open and gentle so we can hear the knocking on the door of our heart when it comes. He believes that faith brings hope. Quote, Hope transcends everything, every pain, sorrow, fear, and loss. Even a glimmer of hope is enough to be the light to the dark, the comfort to the pain. Great fires are started from tiny embers. Just hold on and look up. Now, Grills has written a number of books, one being a daily devotional called Soul Fuel. I pulled that up on Amazon and looked at the sample, which is a good chunk of the first 15 pages or so. I don't disagree with what he said, at least from my skimming through it for the most part, but nowhere in there, nowhere in Bear's interviews, have I found the gospel message of repent and believe. I find a lot of rely on God and have faith in God, God will see you through, have hope in God, and I find a whole lot about it's love, 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 but I'm not finding the gospel. That said, again, I'm not his judge. I'm not Cat's judge. I'm not Jim Kelly's judge. What I can say for sure is that they're on a journey of asking questions and searching for truth. If I had to line them up from most likely saved to least likely, I'd go in the opposite order. I just cover them here. Bear, at least in my opinion, is most likely saved, followed by Jim and then Cat. Admittedly, I could be very, very wrong. What I can tell you is that these three people should be somewhere in our infinite list of those to pray for. Everywhere you turn, of course, we're being told we should pray for this person or these people or this nation, and that's in addition to praying for family and friends, church, leaders, employers, co-workers, and self. And then there are the situations and the fears and the doubts, the struggles, and those things that we've given into and must ask for forgiveness for. Again, 
And I haven't even touched on praying our adoration for who God is or thanking him for the infinite blessings that he's bestowed upon us. The list is overwhelming, is what I'm trying to say. Probably why we should pray without ceasing. I mean, there's just never a time where we couldn't be coming to God with something to thank him for or ask him for. Somewhere in that list, even if it's just one time, as God knows what's on our heart, these three should be in our prayers. Back to where I started this segment. Regardless of religious worldview, Calvinism or Armenianism, our prayers and desires are the same, that these three people either are saved or will be saved. From an Armenian worldview, we pray that these three will discover what they're looking for and choose God. There's an uneasy feeling of uncertainty in that prayer. If this was your parent or your child, there would be a nervousness, a panicked feeling welling up inside as we feel that we must do something so they can know and understand and make the right choice. From a Calvinist perspective, this is already a settled issue. Our job is the same, to pray, to go and tell, because that's what God has commanded us to do, and that's the mechanism that God uses to spread the gospel and bring salvation to the lost. From a view of personal responsibility, that's where our concern ends. God has elected those he will. The Holy Spirit will not fail in his job. If Bear, Jim, or Cat are to be saved, they will be. Bringing it back to a child, I can tell you that a weight is lifted when you understand that it's not your job to save your child. That's on the Holy Spirit. And if your child isn't saved, regardless of what my human mind wants, I know that God's plan cannot be improved upon, even if I temporarily get what my heart desires. My job is to pray for my child and do all I can to ensure he or she knows the truth, train him up in the way he should go. And then although the part about when he is old, he won't depart from it isn't a promise, regardless of how some people present it today, I can pray that that's the case for my child and trust God to bring about his perfect plan perfectly. Now, from a practical standpoint, my fellow Christians, being a Berean is more than just searching the scriptures. In fact, at a surface level, searching the scriptures is one of the easiest things that we can do today. With all of the resources at the tap of an icon or the tapping of a keyboard, searching the scriptures is simple, for lack of a better term. Being a Berean is searching to ensure that what we believe to be true is true. Can we please stop latching on to every single person or thing that even comes remotely close to saying something positive about Christianity in a general sense? Can we step back, do some research, understand what we're being told and by who and why? Can we verify even before we trust? Christians so want to break into the mold of the world to flaunt their latest catch But that's caused us to either look outright foolish or it's caused us to compromise on what we know to be true in order to make the latest trophy fit the case we want to place and display it in. The reason I changed my religious worldview is because I took the time to investigate it. I read, I listened, I reasoned, I asked, and I came to the conclusion that although I don't understand it perfectly, and there are paradoxes that are only possible with a limitless God, it's the view that makes the Bible, all of it, make sense. I'd like to think that I acted faithfully to the pattern laid down by the Bereans. The reason I touch on squidgy topics like the baptisms of celebrities that the Christian world is all too eager to scrawl the names of in our own book of life is because I want to know the truth, and I want others to know the truth. The reason I started this global podcast, and yes, technically it is global, technically, is because I want to search out the truth on so many things because I want to be right about what I think and believe. And I figured maybe a few others would like to be drug along in the muddled mess that is my mind. Be a Berean with me. 
Don't just accept the headline or the social media post or the emotionalism of others. Even at the threat of being called cynical or negative, search for the truth in everything. To do differently is to reject the gift of the mind, reason, and logic that God has granted us. I try to bring interesting and unique information to you, my faithful listeners, every week. Try is probably the optimal word. And if your mind works like mine does first, I'm sorry about that. Second, you should be thinking, no, do or do not. There is no try. Yes, if you're wondering, that was Grover. Anyway, here's an interesting little factoid. Did you know that the inside of a watermelon is purple until you breach the rind, at which point the interaction of oxygen and the natural chemical makeup of the fruit inside makes it instantly turn the red-pink color that we all associate with a watermelon? Interesting, right? Now, for those of you that would doubt me, I mean, (laughs) how dare you? But let me throw down this challenge. Prove me wrong. Hopefully you didn't believe that load of horse hockey, but let me ask you this follow-up question. If I was absolutely serious about the watermelon innards being purple, how could you prove me wrong? I've set up a scenario that's both unprovable and unable to be disproven. You can't see inside a watermelon unless you breach the rind, but if you breach the rind, it instantly turns red. This is the burden of proof fallacy. I've made a claim. Now you have to disprove it. And if you can't, I guess I'm right. And I win. And when you come down to it, it's really all about winning. I mean, what else really matters in life, right? And this is why people generally fall into the most blatant of fallacies, because it's all about winning at winning at any cost. This burden of proof fallacy is where we find ourselves today. I don't think it's intentional, but at the same time, I do think that the point being made would essentially be argued as, prove me wrong. And further, any proof that I'm going to offer very likely wouldn't be accepted as proof and instead would be flipped to prove their own point, because based on the claim that's being made, literally everything can be used to prove the assertion. So although I know that there is literally no way to win based on the logical fallacy we find ourselves facing today, what I'm going to attempt to do is, first, prove the hypothesis as presented to be incorrect, second, prove the thesis statement correct based on a different backing hypothesis, and last, prove the concept of the hypothesis at the practical level incorrect. I really hope those made or will make some sort of sense, as I'll be honest, I really struggled with how to phrase those three points. It's easy to know what I want to do, but sometimes words hard. Let's get started, shall we? Found in the LA Times via MSN.com, headline, Stanford scientist, after decades of study, concludes, we don't have free will. The scientist in question is one Robert Sapolsky, a neurobiologist with more than 40 years studying, quote, humans and other primates. Now, I take umbrage with being lumped in as just another primate, but this is the worldview held by Mr. Sapolsky. Robert Sapolsky is 66 years old, raised in an Orthodox Jewish family in Brooklyn, the son of immigrants from the Soviet Union. The article states, quote, Biology called to him early. By grade school, he was writing fan letters to primatologists and lingering in front of the taxidermied gorillas at the American Museum of Natural History. But religion shaped life at home. Notice the false adversarial relationship the article's author sets up between science and religion. 
The article goes on to state that everything changed for a teenaged Robert one night when he was struggling with questions of his own faith and his identity. That sleepless night dawned with what the article calls an epiphany for Robert. Quote, God is not real. There is no free will. And we primates are pretty much on our own. Robert was quoted as saying with a chuckle, quote, that was kind of a big day and it's been tumultuous since then. This is where I would claim the problem began. For 50 years now, Robert has lived with an atheistic worldview, believing that he has no free will. What are the implications of believing you're nothing but an evolved primate? There's nothing in control of what's out there, and you don't even have control of your own will. The psychological turmoil, whether it was felt or not, has to be devastating. Let's dig into his hypothesis. The article states by throwing the reader into a DeLorean, hitting 88 miles per hour and heading back to a nonsensical historical reference. Epilepsy, prior to our current level of medical understanding, used to be thought of as caused by the moon or witchcraft, demonic possession, or the all-too-common phlegm in the brain. Of course, we now know that it's a neurological disorder. Epileptic seizures are out of control of the individual experiencing them. Out of all of our control are biological or anatomical processes like the division of cells, the beating of our hearts, and according to Mr. Sapolsky, virtually all human behavior entirely. Now, if it seems like it's a stretch to say that we have the same amount of control over the automatic processes of the beating of our hearts as the epileptic has over their seizures, as we all do over the actions we purposefully take and the decisions we consciously make every day, well, you'd be right. That is a mighty stretch. But this is what Mr. Sapolsky contends in his new book after 40 years of research. Now, they jump right into illustrating the ramifications of this kind of a thought process. Quote, this means accepting that a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack and veer out of their lane. That feeling you're currently experiencing likely kind of right in the middle of your forehead, wrapping its way around and up to the top of your head. That's called crippling confusion. How in a sane world could we say that a man shooting into the crowd was first a victim of fate and second had no choice, just as the crowd being there had no choice, just as someone who experiences a heart attack has no choice. Sapolsky admits that this is a hard sell, that it's an unorthodox position. In fact, he said, quote, I'm really, really, really trying not to sound like a combative jerk in the book. I deal with human complexities by going and living in a tent. So yeah, I'm not up for a lot of brawls about this. Robert is described as being mild-mannered, someone who has taken a few months every year for more than 30 years at this point to go live in that tent in rural Kenya to study baboons. His alleged demeanor comes through in what he believes to be the benefit of this theory, but we'll get to that in a moment. So what exactly is his theory? In his book entitled Determined, he outlines the, quote, neurochemical influences that contribute to human behaviors, analyzing the milliseconds to centuries preceding, say, the pulling of a trigger or the suggestive touch on an arm. He rightly states that we typically make worse decisions when we're hungry, stressed, or scared. I don't think anyone would argue with that. I'm generally stressed when I'm hungry because I'm scared there won't be a buffet somewhere close. 
He correctly states that we are the culmination of the genetic traits of our ancestors, of which we have no control over. He further argues that outside physical influences like our mother's stress level, food choices, and potential partaking of various substances while we were still cooking in the womb, or like our family life growing up, etc., etc., all of which we have no control over, all have influence on our choices, decisions, thought processes, and actions through the rest of our lives. He then postulates his burden of proof fallacy, stating that all of these outside influences, the fact that we can't control neurons firing, hearts beating, cells dividing, clearly means that although we don't want to admit it, free will is a myth. We are quite simply slaves to all of these processes and influences. Thus, our actions are not our own. Our thoughts are not our own. We have no culpability in what we were forced to do based on who and what we are and everything around us and what came before us leading up to us. In fact, not only does he say that this is an unavoidable conclusion, he argues that this is the only logical conclusion. We simply have no free will, no choice over our career, romantic partners, weekend plans. In fact, something as simple as reaching out to pick up an object was simply due to chemical impulses, outside influences, etc., etc., all leading to you without the ability to choose to not pick up the object. Knowing and accepting this fact that free will is a myth could lead us to a more just society, Sapolsky and others believe. And how, you may ask? Well, let me give you my own crude example to illustrate. Say you're along for a ride on a long trip. You need to go to the bathroom. So you inform the driver that he needs to pull over relatively soon. Now well, he just keeps driving. You inform him after a short while that it's getting more urgent, yet he drives on. You give a frantic warning that you simply can't wait any longer, but he just ignores you and presses on. You then relieve yourself all over his car seat. Did you do anything wrong? No, you had no choice. Would the driver be justified in getting angry and demanding you pay for the cleaning of his interior? Not at all. You were the victim of circumstances outside of your control. You are innocent of wrongdoing. You and I are simply the passenger in the car of life, beholden to the actions of the driver, which in this case is made up of all that came before us in chemical processes, outside influences, genetics, evolution, and on and on. Sapolsky says, quote, the world is really screwed up and made much, much more unfair by the fact that we reward people and punish people for things they have no control over. We've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. Greg Caruso, a philosopher at SUNY Corning and co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network, who agrees with Sapolsky, says, quote, Who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control, and because of this we are never morally responsible for our actions in the sense that would make us truly deserving of praise and blame, punishment and reward. Caruso believes that, with regard to criminal activity, the focus should be on preventing future harm rather than assigning blame. Rather than punishing the criminal, we should look for the causes of criminality and address those. Well, let me just say this, Mr. Caruso. You're being very, very inconsistent in your belief structure, as the causes of all criminality are, per your theory, predetermined and unstoppable. 
Sapolsky has been confronted on his apparent inconsistency in this life, moving from being raised in a very religious conservative home to is now professing to be a liberal atheist. I mean, how could that be with those influences? Well, he argues that just as a sea slug can learn to retreat from an electrical shock simply out of reflex, we too can change due to external influences. This is simply just stimuli to our biochemical pathways, resulting in a response, again, predetermined, out of our control. See what I mean about the burden of proof fallacy? This theory is very elaborate in its simplicity and literally unable to be argued against, at least based on a humanist level. Sapolsky admits that attempting to to convince people who have been harmed in some way by someone else that the individual that harmed them is in no way culpable for his actions and does not deserve blame or punishment is a difficult argument to win, at least in our current culture. But Sapolsky claims that even more difficult than that is to convince someone successful and accomplished that they aren't deserving of any praise or accolades for their accomplishment. Although Sapolsky simply hopes that this increases compassion for our fellow man, knowing that someone that's committed a crime is in no different position as someone with depression or ADHD. His detractors point out that this is a very dangerous position to advocate, as it must necessarily result in a lack of moral responsibility. Whether true or not, even the perception that we have no free will, thus no responsibility, will lead to depression, hopelessness, and lawlessness. A study from 2008 found that people who were given information about the lack of free will in humanity were more likely to cheat on a subsequently given test. Others in similar studies were found to care less about making mistakes at work. They were more aggressive and they were less helpful. Sapolsky rejects these studies. <laughs> Sapolsky believes that ridding ourselves of the illusion of free will will not result in society doing bad things. It would more likely result in people not wanting to do anything. Sapolsky states that we are quite simply machines. We do perceive, we do experience, we in fact feel, but machines fail. It's wrong to hate or punish a machine because it fails. But he admits a conundrum in his worldview. Quote, it is logically indefensible, ludicrous, meaningless to believe that something good can happen to a machine. Nonetheless, I am certain that it is good if people feel less pain and more happiness. Now, I went on a search for Mr. Sapolsky's views on the current atrocities in Israel by Hamas and the Palestinians. As an atheist but a Jew by ethnicity, I would think he'd have an opinion. Finding none, I searched for his view on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he's the child of Russian Jewish immigrants to the United States. I found a YouTube video from about a month after the initial invasion. In 10 minutes, he goes into a rambling explanation of how, based on evolution, animals are able to identify their kin through smell, but humans aren't. We think. We have to decide if a person is part of us or part of them, which means we can be manipulated into thinking one way or the other. This causes groups of people to band together, both for our group and against other groups. We can oppress others. We can hate others for various reasons. We can even deny that certain groups even exist as a people, which, quote, lots of Israelis do that to the Palestinians. Isn't that interesting? As a Jew, he's repeating this tripe. Now, this may tell us what we need to know about which side of the current Israeli war he falls, although he claims to not really care about politics, war, and current events, etc., <laughs> although he talks a whole lot about it in this 10 minutes. 
He goes on to essentially say that we're all being psychologically manipulated to believe that others are disgusting, we're made to hate them so that we can go kill them, and that all humans are equally human and killing a human is wrong. He may be a very nice man, although after listening to him, I get more arrogance than I do quiet and friendly. But he's simply wrong about his view on the war, and he's grossly wrong about his view on free will. The problem, as I stated at the beginning, is that I literally have no way to argue that he's wrong from his worldview, as no matter what I say or do, I was predetermined to do so based on an infinite number of factors, which makes my view meaningless, as everything is literally meaningless, we're just walking fleshy robots enslaved by our evolutionary masters. Put simply, he has made a claim that is self-sustaining, self-arguing, and he's shifted the burden to you and me to disprove something that can't be disproven based on the claim itself. His watermelon is purple on the inside. The crack in his argument, though, is evolution, which is his worldview. By definition, evolution is a series of random chances, random changes over time, resulting in who we currently are, who and what everything is, in fact. Evolution by design and by definition has no lawgiver, no standard for morality. It's simply a product of societal agreements on how we should interact as humans. But that agreement is only valid for those that agree with the agreement. And because evolution is a theory based on randomness, I don't have to agree with your agreement. So my morality, my thought process, can be vastly different from yours and from Mr. Sapolsky's. Evolution says there's no right or wrong. There's no correct or incorrect. There is no way that Sapolsky can claim to be correct. There's no way for him to ever be correct in his assertion that we have no free will. His conclusion about our lack of free will is nothing more than a byproduct of the chemicals that make up Mr. Sapolsky. He can't be right, and he can't be wrong, based on his worldview. Sapolsky is only right in his own mind which can't be trusted or relied upon because we don't know if his chemicals are correctly mixed or not. Mr. Sapolsky has made a logical assertion. He has used a process of logic to arrive at what is an incorrect hypothesis. He's used logic to argue a logical fallacy. He, as an evolutionist, as a result of random chemical chance, has no right to claim the use of the laws of logic. In order for him to argue that we are slaves to our evolution, he must borrow from the Christian worldview which has a lawmaker and a lawgiver who upholds his laws, including the law of logic, simply by his will. Mr. Sapolsky can only argue there is no God, there is no morality, there is no free will by relying on the existence of the very God he chose of his own free will to deny who is the arbiter of morality who holds the key to human will and agency. So can I prove him wrong? Well, per his fallacious argument and due to his unregenerate, God-denying mind, no, it's literally not possible to prove him or any of his ilk wrong, as any argument I bring will simply be argued that what I'm arguing is what I was predetermined to argue based on chemical, neurological, genetic, and external influences, which by definition proves that Mr. Sapolsky can't trust his own conclusion. So yes, I can and can't absolutely prove him wrong based on his worldview. Evolution and Mr. Sapolsky's argument for the lack of the existence of free will based at its core on the theory of evolution is, in a word, nonsensical. The question then isn't, is Mr. Sapolsky correct in his assertion? The question at its core is, is the theory of evolution correct? Or is the biblical account of an omnipotent sovereign creator God correct? 
In the nearly two years that I've been putting out this podcast, I've addressed evolution in some form or fashion at least 17 times based on doing a word search on my transcripts. Time will not permit us in this segment to yet again run through an exhaustive dismantling of the silly theory of evolution. You can go back and find past segments, or you can go to excellent resources like Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research, or Creation Ministries International to explore nearly every topic and find the answers to nearly every question you may have. Suffice to say that evolution is not only unprovable, but when it's slowly and methodically analyzed based on their theories, based on the evidence, it's nothing but smoke and mirrors. It's a movie lot full of the facades of houses propped up by two-by-fours with absolutely nothing behind them. Without evolution, Mr. Sapolsky's claim falls on its face. Goal number one, prove Mr. Sapolsky's hypothesis to be incorrect. I'm not sure if I've accomplished that in your mind, but if for any reason you think I've failed, well, that's simply because the chemicals you're made up of, your genetics, and external influences have conspired to predetermine that you have no choice but to willingly refuse to listen and comprehend the logical argument as presented. Anyway, goal two, prove the thesis statement correct based on a different packing hypothesis. When you throw out the theory of evolution, there is really only one other credible theory remaining, that of biblical creation. Yes, there are a number of other origin stories and practically an infinite number of worldviews out there, but they're all either an obvious derivative of evolution or biblical creation. Therefore, we'll ignore the fringe views and stick with the two widely accepted views. Mr. Sapolsky's theory is that we have no free will. So what does the Bible say about that? Well, this is where we get into some choppy waters. Here's what we know. The God of the Bible is omnipotent, or all-powerful. He's omniscient, or all-knowing. He is omnipresent, or all-places, which applies to space and time. And he is completely sovereign, or in complete control of all things. We further know that there is a doctrine of predestination that's found in the pages of Scripture, as well as a doctrine of election. The Christian must determine, or better stated, discern what to do with these. The problem, from my perspective, is that all too often we allow emotion to enter into this process of discernment. Emotion has no place in an analysis of facts. Now, once the facts are determined, emotion can absolutely come into play as we figure out what to do with the facts, but emotion should not dictate the analysis or the outcome. As with evolution, I've discussed this topic previously as well, but I'll take a few minutes to touch on this here. When we broach the subject of free will, we often equate the term to our ability to do whatever we want. We often use the explanation in the Christian world that God didn't create robots. This is a way to define free will, but it's really a very simplistic and incomplete definition. I think the best definition of free will that I've heard came from Dr. R.C. Sproul. Simply stated, free will is the ability to act without being forced to act in a way counter to our desire. Although on the surface this seems very similar to the previous definition of simply being able to do what we want, the addition of the action we take being what we want in accordance to our desire makes a large difference. Getting ahead of myself a little bit here. First, to determine if we have free will or not, we must first understand the sovereign nature of God. Without a correct understanding of what it means for God to be sovereign, we can't begin to define free will. Sovereignty, per the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is defined as supreme power or freedom from external control. When applied to God, it means that God is overall. He is the creator of all. He is the sustainer of all. He is the ruler of all. 
Per Easton's Bible Dictionary, the sovereignty of God means that he has the, quote, absolute right to do all things according to his good pleasure. Now, some backing scriptures include Daniel 4.25. This is when Daniel was called to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to have his kingdom taken from him, that he was going to live as a wild beast for a time. The end of verse 25, after Daniel tells him that his kingdom will be taken from him, he says that this will continue, quote, until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. Exodus 4, as Moses is arguing his case against having to go speak to Pharaoh and demand the release of the children of Israel, God tells him in verse 11, quote, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Paul, in Romans 9, states, quote, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Now these passages clearly show God's sovereignty over his creation, but lest you think these are the only or the majority of the passages regarding God's sovereignty, rest assured, these only scratch the surface. If you've been listening to my goal updates, you'll know that I'm working my way through the Bible at a much slower pace than I have in the past. As part of that, I've decided to start underlining in a color code specific passages. Maybe I'll go over my color coding system in the goal update or an upcoming one. But for these purposes, I've chosen orange to underline passages that show God's sovereignty over his creation. And just to give you a brief idea, and this is not all I've underlined, but here are some things I've underlined so far. God sovereignly determined to give the promised land to and make a great nation of Abraham and his descendants. There was nothing Abraham did to make it happen. There's nothing anyone can do to stop it. God used disputes over wells to move Isaac where he wanted him. God moved Esau out of the promised land. God not only placed Joseph in Egypt, but also placed him in prison, placed the cupbearer and the baker in prison with him, gave them dreams, two years later gave Pharaoh a dream, all to place Joseph in the exact position needed to move his entire family into Egypt so God could rescue them out of Egypt much later, showing his power and glory to the entire Israelite and Egyptian nations. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh in order to show his power. God dictated what Satan could and could not do to Job. Job, in chapter 12, speaks of God's sovereignty over man and the earth in ways that we don't generally feel comfortable with. Here are some examples. He pulls down, and it can't be rebuilt. He closes a man in, and it cannot be opened. He restrains the water, and they dry up. The misled and the misleader belong to him. 
He makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. He removes speech from the faithful and takes away the discerning taste of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He makes the nations great, then makes them perish. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He removes the heart of wisdom from the heads of the earth's peoples and makes them wander in pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them wander about like a drunken man. He determines the number of months of a man and sets limits that no man can pass. And then God himself, from Job 38 to 41, clearly lays out who he is and the fact that he is over all. Those are the books I've been through since I started color-coding my Bible, as well as some other various other passages throughout the Bible. God's sovereignty is absolutely everywhere in the Bible. God has created all. He sustains all. He owns all. He is in control of all. Again, Sproul oftentimes made the comment that if there was one maverick molecule in all of creation that God wasn't sovereignly in control of, that one molecule could be the one that would totally destroy the plan of God. For us to have free will in relation to God, that means that if we slowed our lives down to view it frame by frame, there would need to be at least one frame where God doesn't know what our action will be in the next frame. This isn't biblically possible. Furthermore, if God knows every frame of our lives, but he's not able to exert his control over each frame, he's not sovereign, and that's not biblically possible either. The emotional argument over free will for the Christian typically culminates in salvation. Does God elect some for salvation of his own free will? This is typically termed Calvinism. Or does he lay out his best argument, then hope that as many as possible will choose him, which is typically termed Arminianism. I'd argue that the Bible says that prior to salvation, we are dead in our sins, not sick, not injured, not dying, dead. God must resurrect us or give us new life. Dead men don't do nothing. We all know Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Many fewer know the next two verses that make up the golden chain. Quote, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you follow those verses backwards, you clearly see that those who are saved, those who will live forever in heaven, are those that God elected from before creation, not one more or one less. So following it backward, we get those who are glorified are those who are resurrected to life in heaven. That's what that means. Those who are glorified are made up of every person who was justified. The people that are justified are those that are saved, that are made just through the mercy and grace of God. Now, those who are justified are made up of every person who was called. This is speaking of the effectual, specific call of God to those he chose. Those who are called are made up of every person who was predestined. The predestined are those who were set as the elect of God prior to their birth, prior to their calling, prior to their ability to understand anything about salvation. And those who were predestined are all of those who were foreknown. Foreknown is referring to the fact that God knew his elect prior to creating the very first atom of creation. At no time from God's foreknowledge to the glorification of the Christian in heaven, per this passage, 
is one person added or subtracted from the number. This makes a lot of people uncomfortable, as they don't like to think that God chooses some for salvation and not others. But keep in mind that not one of us deserves salvation. God has no reason except to show his glory to save any of us. In his mercy, he has chosen to save some. I'd also encourage you to think about this. Is there any being in all of creation and all of history that you'd rather have in charge of making the decision about who will be saved? Do you think that you or I or anyone would make a better selection? I hope you don't think you could make a better decision or better choice than God. That would either be a very high view of yourself or a very low view of God, both of which are suboptimal. So if God is sovereign in salvation, if he is in control of every molecule, does man have free will? Well, from an ultimate sense, no. At no time is God out of control. At no time can we overrule God's decision. At no time is God caught off guard. Ultimately, God is in complete and total control of absolutely everything, and we do exactly what we were predestined to do. Goal number two Prove the thesis statement correct based on a different backing hypothesis. And that leads us into goal number three. Prove the concept of the hypothesis that we have no free will at the practical level incorrect. So I just said we don't have free will. And now I'm saying that we do have free will? Remember, free will is simply the ability to act in accordance with our desire and inclination. Or conversely, to not be forced to act contrary to our desires. All throughout the Bible, we find accounts of man making choices that work poorly, shall we say? James 4.4 says, quote, You adulterous people, a rough way to start that, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This clearly shows that man has the ability to choose to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. John 8:44 says, quote, "You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, your will." We see the effects of our sinful will in 2 Timothy 3, quote, "But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It sure sounds like a lot of personal selfish choices in accordance with the sinful nature of man, doesn't it? Because, see, as an unregenerate, sinful human, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We make sinful choices because our inclination, our desire is for sin, but then God. In fact, let's read the first handful of verses from Ephesians 2. Quote, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, God of his own will changes our desire, our inclination, not to make us sinless, at least not while we're stuck in this mortal body on this sin-cursed earth, but to allow us to make our own choices to glorify and worship God. Once God regenerates our heart, opens our eyes, we can then freely choose to follow Christ and live for his glory. God is not forcing us to worship him. He's simply changing the desire of our heart from enmity with God to servant, then friend, then child of God, and co-heir with Christ. Prior to regeneration, we don't have to be coerced, tricked, blackmailed, or forced to sin against God. We like it. We love it. We want some more of it. After regeneration, we don't have to be coerced, tricked, blackmailed, or forced to love and praise our Creator and Savior. Again, this is what our heart now desires, regardless of the fact that this mortal body and mind still sin, hopefully less and less, while we're becoming more childlike in our sinning, more mature in our understanding and our love over time, but we still sin. Our free will is exactly that. We're freely able to make choices that align with our heart's desires. So, all that said, the inevitable question that must arise is, who then is responsible for evil in this world? If we don't have free will because God is sovereign, then is God responsible for evil? If we are completely responsible for our choices which are aligned with our desires, knowing that the desires of the unsaved are directly counter to God and enmity with God, and that even the regenerate contend with their human nature, which is counter to God, is man responsible for evil? Well, what about Satan and his demonic forces? How do they play into this? Well, the answer to this is huge, and there's no way in just a few minutes I can do justice to this, but let me try to be brief. We all know that God is not the author of evil, but if God is sovereign over all, if not one molecule is out of God's control, the only conclusion can be that what we see as evil, that is, what appears in our limited context to be evil, must ultimately be for God's glory and our good. There is no way on this side of glory I could ever hope to explain how abortion, genocide, abuse, natural disasters, wars, drugs, crime, trafficking, and the list of human evil is nearly infinite can all work together ultimately for God's glory. But it must. It has to. Or else the Bible isn't a reliable text or God's word, and God isn't God. Satan is clearly not on the side of good, clearly not wanting to glorify God. Satan is working his evil plan according to his desire to destroy God and take over the throne. Selfish, arrogant, sinful man absolutely chooses according to his desire, which is counter to God's desire. The reality is that just as free will is a paradox, something we don't have and we do have at the same time, the question of who is responsible for the evil we see in the world is also a paradox. The only way I can view this is by trying my best to understand the realm that each entity exists within. Man is in the physical world, and in this form we are finite and very temporary. Angels and demons are created beings, seemingly infinite beings, but not gods by any stretch of the imagination, and they exist in the spirit world but interact with the physical world in various ways. God is eternal, uncreated, infinite, and completely unrestrained. He can move freely and exist in any and all times and locations. He is a spirit, but can interact with the physical world. And he can do all things at all times. And I'd argue not only can he exist in all realms at all times, he does. The best explanation I've heard about how we can view an all-sovereign God, which we should all be able to agree is biblically correct, and the existence of evil in the world— 
which we can all see with our own eyes on a daily basis, was given by Pastor Mike Riccardi. Very, very quickly summarized, and I'll put his three-part write-up in the notes and highly suggest you read it slowly, as it's fairly high level, is that there are three causes for the evil we see in the world. Man is the ground floor. We're where the rubber meets the road. We freely do exactly what we want to do based on the desires of our sinful human nature. We are the efficient cause of evil. Simply stated, we do the evil thing because we want to do the evil thing. Our intent is in itself evil. We are responsible for the evil that we want to do. The next level is called the proximate cause. This could be most simply thought of as the middleman. This typically would be Satan or demonic suggestion, temptation, etc. They can't do the evil, but what they're doing in tempting mankind to commit evil acts is in itself evil. Their intent is evil. Their intent is against God and, frankly, against the image bearers of God. They are responsible for the evil that they do. Now, the final level is called the ultimate cause. God is the ultimate cause of what we perceive as evil in this world. The difference and the reason God is not committing or the author of evil by being in ultimate control is that God's intent is not evil. God's ultimate intent is for the good of his children and for his glory. As Paul states, who are we as the pot to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Who are we to question an infinite God about his ultimate plan? Who are we to think that we could ever devise even a microscopically better plan? If this idea of God being in ultimate control, whether we perceive something as good or bad, that God is in ultimate control of everything, let me ask you this. Would it make you more concerned if God was in control of everything or if he wasn't? If you don't choose the latter, I have to call into question your view of who exactly God is. Think of the surgeon. He, or she, does massive damage to the body, but with the intent of a greater good. Think of Joseph when he told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Think of the cross. God mutilated and slaughtered his only son. This was the biggest evil ever perpetrated that ever will be perpetrated, as it was against God himself, and it was done with God's ultimate redemptive plan in view. Go all the way back to the garden. I've spoken before that I think Satan influenced or convinced the serpent to join him in deceiving Eve and ultimately Adam. There's no other logical reason why God would punish the serpent, at least not in my mind. So man was the efficient cause of the downfall into sin of all mankind. Man disobeyed God's command and ate the fruit he wasn't supposed to. The snake was proximate cause number one, the first middleman, as he did the talking. Satan was proximate cause number two, the second middleman, as he told the serpent what to say. And God, well, if you think that God wasn't in control of even the fall of man, again, who is this God you're worshiping? God, in order to show his justice and mercy, his grace and redemption, his glory, was in ultimate control of even the fall of Adam. He had to be. If he wasn't in ultimate control, he's not the God of the Bible, and we have grave theological contradictions. I know that this ran longer than even my generally longer segments. If you're still here and awake and without a pen stuck in your eye, I thank you. Our Professor Sapolsky, and those who agree with his theory, see something inherent in humanity. There is something that's more powerful than our own selves. Unfortunately, because he has decided that there is no higher power, it leaves a void that must be filled. 
Now, for Mr. Sapolsky, that void can only be filled with randomly evolved chemicals, random unreliable thoughts, and random external interactions with other randomly evolved humans. He has no leg to stand on, just an unprovable theory that can't be disproven because of the nonsensical nature of his theory. His watermelon is purple. You may not agree with what I've said here. I ask that you look into the links in the notes, that you study your Bible, that you remove emotion as you reason out a sovereign God with free will and evil in the world. I'm not interested in getting into a debate on this, but if there are legitimate questions, please feel free to email. As someone that's read a lot, thought a lot, reasoned a lot about this topic over the last nearly a decade, I can't unsee what I've seen and I can't accept what is illogical. Simply put, I refuse to believe in purple watermelons. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, here we are. Goal update number 36. Let's just start here. I don't know what my weight was. I didn't weigh in. I didn't want to know. That's just being honest. The working out thing is going well, and it's actually burning a lot of calories, at least according to my tracker. But with Halloween candy just laying around, food at work, etc., no self-control, probably not terrible, but probably not good. As I've said before, my drive waxes and wanes with regard to weight and diet and exercise and right now it's waning they're waxing or or it's wax off i don't know i'm not really sure whichever one means i ain't got no interest in it how about that for some honesty right i do need to figure out what exactly i want to do though i know that getting down to 170 or 175 is possible even in these my advanced years the question is do i want to or more importantly do i need to put in the effort to get to that and my answer right now, and if you had listened to last week's goal update, my answer right now is no, I don't think I need to do that. But where I'm at and where I've been, unless I'm a smaller version of one of those world's strongest men guys with no neck and thighs bigger than most people, I don't need to be at this weight either. And if all I was doing was cardio, the type of thing where you tone muscle, not build muscle, then sure, 175, give or take, would probably be a good goal. But I don't want to do that want to trade fat for muscle. Not a massive amount of muscle and really not a massive amount of fat either. I know that the only medical concern is around my cholesterol and even that needs for me to get much heavier and slothier in order for that to go up. So as long as I'm working out, that, at least history has shown, stays in check just fine. So all that said, I may take a few weeks off of weighing in. I do need to count calories. I need to kind of reset myself and figure out exactly what I want to do, you know, for the rest of this year, but really on into 2024. And then I need to do it. Of course, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the hard part. Anyway, let's move on. Reading. At least this is one that went well. Last week, I was able to read, <laughs> wait for it, 114 pages, which is the most I've done in quite a while, actually. That brings my total pages read to 5,321 for the year. I'm nearing the end of this book, finally, about 60 pages to go, which I plan on 
finishing up my next update. That'll not only finish that book, but it'll put me over the 5,380 pages I read in 2019, giving me the second most pages I've read in a year since I started tracking that number a number of years ago. I already have the next book sitting there ready to go, and it's a much lighter fiction book, should go much faster, but we'll get to that. Moving on to Bible reading, another week of four days against my goal of five, so my overall progress is at least holding steady at 80% of my goal pace. I can see that this one needs to stay on my goals for next year, maybe refining exactly what I'm doing, but it's something that, much like weight, clearly needs some work. As for progress, I'm through Exodus 6 in my chronological reading and through Genesis 7:12 in my deeper, much slower study. As for the observations, questions, etc., just nothing. I mean, the Bible just had nothing to say this time. No, you know, no, I'm kidding. So, Exodus 1, we jump up through time. The children of Israel increased greatly. Joseph died. A new king arose that didn't know Joseph or even really care about what Joseph did. The new king, or Pharaoh, got scared that the Israelites would overrun the Egyptians and decided the best course of action would be to enslave them before they enslaved the Egyptians. Now, we have no indication that the Israelites had any intention or even gave any sign that they were going to do that, but that, of course, didn't matter. So he started by enslaving them to build cities, then he decided that that wasn't quite enough and said, hey, quote, let us deal wisely with them, which is an interesting way to say, hey, let's put them under hard, brutal slavery. But okay, I mean, you know, to each their own. But we see this progression, and it was over time, but not really a lot of time, I don't think. Pharaoh, apparently without a fight, conscripted them to build cities. Then he decided to go all the way and fully enslave them with taskmasters, putting them under hard labor. This was intended to stop them from having enough time or energy to make more little Israelites. It didn't work. So Pharaoh got more brutal in his enslavement. Still, they multiplied. So he mandated post-birth abortion, or let's just call it by its old-fashioned name of murder. And he wanted to murder the male Israelite babies. Now this is the point when the Israelites finally pushed back. And they only pushed back by lying and covering up the births, not by rising up, not by rebelling or fighting. Now, I'm reading this, and as I've done every time I've read this story or this account, I'm wondering, why? I mean, how could they just let this happen without doing anything? This time, though, I stopped and I thought, because have you seen the United States? So my question is, why? Why would we, as a people, allow ourselves to be enslaved by a small number of ruling elite? What is it about humanity that we're willing to just take it? to the point that we can't even see that we can easily fight back and win. And I'm not even talking about a hot war in the United States. I'm talking about at the ballot box right now. But you know, as you go farther on in the story of Exodus, we see the Israelites out from under their oppressors, but then desiring to be enslaved again because the perception was that it was better to live under slavery than it was to work hard in the unknown. And I think that's where we are in this country. We've got half of the country that sides with the enslavers. And what really boggles my mind is the black population in the country supporting the very people that enslaved them originally, fought to keep them enslaved in a civil war, I mean, actually fought their own countrymen, their own relations in order to keep slaves, fought against civil rights, consistently speaks out even today, speaks of them in racist, demeaning terms, and is currently using money to enslave them more than they've ever been enslaved to begin with. 
How does that happen? How do we humans not see this until it's too late? If, if we ever do. <sighs> okay. Let's go ahead and climb all the way down off of this huge soapbox and continue with this update. Genesis 6-6 is where we find God looking at humans and the mess that we have made of everything, and it says that the Lord regretted or repented or was sorry that he had made them. The word translated as regret or repent is the word nacham or nacham. A lot of people wonder how an omnipotent God, a perfect God, could regret making a mistake, right? How could he make a mistake? Well, there are a number of ways to interpret this Hebrew word, but the first couple in Strong's dictionary are to sigh or to breathe strongly. And to me, this seems more accurate. God looking down at humanity, floundering around, thinking we've all got it figured out, and every thought of our heart is just evil all of the time, and God lets out a big, Now, I'm not sure how you'd write that in the Bible. Maybe, you know, the Lord looked at humanity on the earth and it grieved him in his heart and just, just, Uh, maybe not. Back in Exodus 3, God comes to Moses in the burning bush. Verse 3 is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It depends on the translation, but it's one of my favorites. It's the epitome of of understatement. Moses sees this bush burning, and one would have to assume that God didn't manifest as a, you know, smoldering branch. This had to be a massive blaze. Verse 3 says, quote, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now recall that Moses was writing this account about himself. He sure does play it cool, doesn't he? Anyway, not my point. What we find is that through the next few verses, God identifies himself as the God of the patriarchs, which Moses accepts. God describes the oppression in Egypt, which Moses can fully understand and imagine since the time that he ran off about 40 years ago. God promises to Moses that he is going to deliver Israel out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. God promises directly to Moses that he would be with Moses. Moses still says... I'm probably not the right guy for this. I mean, isn't that a metaphor for all of us? Would we act any differently if we encountered God in a burning bush today? I mean, we're given so many promises in the Bible, and yet we push back and protest just just constantly. Moving back to Genesis 6, we see Noah doing the exact opposite of what we see Moses doing here. We hear that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generation. Noah walked with God. This was verse 9. Blameless may be better translated as a man of integrity when you look it up. In verse 22, we read, quote, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. In the verses between 9 and 22, so we're, we're bounded by 9 and 22, which says Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man, that he did everything that God commanded him. And in between, we have this alternating view of man's sin and God's mercy, the the struggle going on between the two here. Verses 11 through 13 describes the corruption in the heart of man, the violence in the earth, and God says he's wiping it all out. In the verse 14, God commands Noah to make an ark of gopher wood. Salvation for those that God chose in the midst of all this evil. It was God's mercy and salvation. Then God, in verse 17, states he's bringing the floodwaters to wipe out everything. They're now coming. In verse 18 through 20, God establishes a covenant with Noah and his family and all the living things that will be rescued by his mercy and given a place on the ark. 
Again, this is something we should take to heart. No matter what evil is going on in this world, God's mercy and salvation will come in the end. He will rescue his elect. There is no doubt of this. In Exodus 4, verse 11, we see again God's sovereignty over all things. Regardless of if we perceive it as good or bad, God is sovereignly in control of all of it. Quote, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, God is in control. We don't believe this like we used to. If a person is deaf or blind or suffers dementia or a heart attack, or let's say if someone is elected that we don't like or that even hates God, God is in control of that just as much as God is in control of if we survive an accident unscathed or we live a long, wonderful life or we have a job that we just love. This should result in us thanking God for all things, good or bad, as we know, we know that he's in control of all of it. So why do we have to worry? Why should we bother worrying? Admittedly, easier said than done. Finally, back to Exodus one more time. After Moses keeps arguing, God finally gives in, and Aaron, Moses' brother, is selected to be the spokesman. God tells Moses in Exodus 4.15, quote, And you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you shall do. Now, God had initially promised to be with the mouth of Moses, but Moses protested, saying that he was a man of slow speech, or some translations say a hard mouth and a hard tongue. But even now, God still promised to be with Moses' mouth. So does that mean that despite the protestations by Moses, God still healed whatever issue Moses had, allowing him to speak correctly without his impediment? I don't know. But we do find later in Exodus, as we get into the plagues and warnings to Pharaoh, that over and over, Moses is commanded to speak directly to Pharaoh, not through Aaron, and then Moses is commanded to tell Aaron to take an action. So that's kind of how I would take it, that God, despite Moses, still was with the mouth of Moses, and at least in front of Pharaoh, allowed him to speak without an issue. Okay, what do you think? Am I on target with this stuff and this update, the past updates? Am I on target with these things that I'm asking and thinking and observing or am I way off base? And how about you? What are you finding as you read and study? Anybody? Bueller? Anyway, that does it for this week. Okay, bye.